Mothers. For most of us, a mother's love is natural. It's comforting and warm, cozy and endless. Knowing that the person who gave you life will always be there, no matter what challenges lie ahead, is a reassuring feeling every child deserves. Not only do they deserve it, but that love is essential for the proper growth of a child overall. From the beginning, we trust our mothers to provide that love, and if that trust is betrayed, my mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. If that trust is betrayed, the child's entire world will be warped. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. And I watched the alcohol increase. I watched her social life drop off. I watched her get bizarre. She had terrible pain from her life, earlier life, her upbringing. Uh, a failed marriage with my father. I'm a constant reminder of that failure. And I'm picking up young women. And I'm going a little bit farther each time. Uh, and I knew I was going to kill her. Welcome to A Dark Tale. This is part two of our debut episode on Edmund Kemper, a.k.a. the co-ed killer. Thank you for joining us again. With me is James. Hi there. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter at A Dark Tale Pod. You can also send inquiries to our email at adarktalepodcast at gmail.com. All of our episodes are also going to be available on the Stitcher app. Please tell a friend, and when you do, tell them to tell a friend. Stick around. Let's get into part two. Okay, so in the last episode, we covered a lot of background information on Ed Kemper's childhood and his upbringing. We left off with his release from Atascadero State Hospital Mm. on his 21st birthday, Lucky Eddie. But on this episode, we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of the story. Okay, good good word use. Though. Maybe that was a bad analogy. <laughs> this is going to be all about the murder spree that Ed went on for, for a good while. And uh, it culminates with the murder of his mother and her best friend and Ed's subsequent surrender. So if you're not into the bloody, gory stuff... We're giving you a little trigger warning, even though, you know, it's a true crime podcast. This is to be expected. <laughs> so let's get into the co-ed murders. It was between May 1972 and April 1973 when Kemper embarked on a murder spree that started with two college students and ended with the murders of his mother and her best friend. He would pick up female students who were on, or hitchhiking and he would take them to isolated areas where uh, he would shoot, stab, smother, or strangle them. He would then take their lifeless bodies back to his home where he would decapitate them. He would have sex with their severed heads and then sexual intercourse with their corpses and then dismember them. During this 11-month spree, he killed five college students, one high school student, his mother, and then his mother's best friend. Kemper has stated in interviews that he would often go hunting for victims after his mother's outburst towards him, and that she would not introduce him to women attending the university where she worked. 
He recalled she would say, you're just like your father. You don't deserve to get to know them. So, James, the first two victims, other than his grandparents, were Mary Ann Pesci and Anita Lucchesa back in May 1972. He picked up the two young 18-year-old Fresno State students, Mm -hmm. um, 18 years old. They were hitchhiking by themselves to see friends at Stanford University. And unfortunately, Ed would be the last person that they saw that day, not their friends. This was a time when police really didn't jump onto missing persons cases right away. Okay. So when these girls didn't show up to Stanford, it wasn't like thought of as an immediate emergency. So because of the amount of runaways there were back then and the population of transients and homeless, yeah, in addition just, to the uh, hitchhiking. Like gun. a heavy like hitch, hitchhiking population, too. Like that was just big around that time. Before. Exactly. The 70s, um, it just wasn't taken as seriously as it is today. So that in mind, Kemper drove to an isolated spot he knew from working in the highway. We mentioned this oh, before. that's right. Yeah, okay. In uh, part one. Yeah, you. I think you questioned that, whether he was scoping out areas for later use. Yeah. Turns out he was. He seems to have utilized every aspect of, uh, like, the building blocks of himself. You know, the things we covered in part one. It's like, oh, he took this job here. Oh, he was scoping things out. He went to a hospital, but he was learning the procedures and he was getting around shit. He's like a shark. That's that sociopathic mentality, mm-hmm. man. They just... They, they mold into whatever situation they're in. I actually read a study. Well, about, you see what this is doing to us now. <laughs> about psychology uh, um, and sociopaths, that talk therapy, normal talk therapy, is of no use to a sociopath. Right. It actually sharpens their skills. Well, I... Regarding what? Okay, so no, regarding I'm how not, they, I'm not trying to get so on too hard of a tangent here, but yeah, sharpens so their skills regarding what I question because that sounds very in terms of manipulation. They they use their therapist as a reason to justify their sociopathic acts. Whatever, whatever you're saying, malicious sociopaths, malicious sociopaths. Yeah, because yeah, I'm sure there's Such plenty as of temper. Sociopath. Yeah. Anyway, so he would drive these girls to isolated areas that he knew working at the highway department, and he would do so, again, from practicing with those over 150 girls that he picked up hitchhiking. He's able to do this without arousing suspicion of these girls. So when he's comfortable with his surroundings, he uh, forces Anita into the trunk. Oh, jeez. He handcuffs Marianne, pulls a bag over her head, and tries to suffocate her. Marianne, in the situation that she was in, was brave enough to make an attempt fight back Ed. And we we know Ed's huge. And yeah. Marianne's this 18-year-old college girl. I don't know her, all of her measurements, but I can't imagine she was anywhere close to Kemper's size. But she makes a uh, fight, valiant fight, to save her life, and she bites a hole through the bag that's over her head, mm-hmm. allowing her to breathe. Uh, Kemper never expected anybody to fight him. Yeah, that must have been a, a, a weird kind of wake-up call where it wasn't as easy as he just kind of thought it would be. Right, um, right. So he's infuriated by this. People fighting for their freaking lives, you know. <laughs> and it's amazing in the f- 
flight or fight response that says, fuck it, I'm, I'm fighting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what Good else? Good for you. But he's infuriated by this and <sighs> ends up uh, stabbing Marianne repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And then he opens up the trunk, slits Anita's throat, and throws Marianne in, uh, into the trunk with Anita. And, again, I'm going to give you a little bit of a trigger warning here because this is where it gets really graphic. And from here on in, I'm not going to go over every single detail of every single murder because his MO really doesn't change in a, in a whole vast amount of ways. Right. I think most people kind of have a common understanding that um, what makes a serial killer a serial killer is uh, their methodology and how they kind of repeat things over and over again. So, right. I mean, this and this guy is the textbook. And, uh, he's um, where that comes from. So yeah, and James, you already kind of mentioned this stuff mm-hmm. in the in the introduction. So uh, because Camper wasn't expecting a fight, his overall fantasy wasn't fulfilled. Right, uh, his needs weren't met. So after the killing, kid, excuse me, after killing the young women, he's got both bodies in his trunk, and he goes back to his mom's apartment where he uh, rapes the dead girls, the corpses, and dismembers them. Yeah, um, I guess that wasn't enough. Thank God. Well, what it is for for Kemper is the feeling of control. Yeah, power. Power. It's not about anything that me or you or any normal human being would consider sexy. You know what I mean? Right, no. It's not... It's not about that for him. It's about the power and the control over another person because he never had that as a kid. As mom, that she kind of kept it on a pedestal too. Yeah, like just the fact you'll never, yeah, you'll never be good enough. Yeah, you're not good enough to meet girls. Yeah. at any so point, on and so forth. at any point, let's say after he was released from a Tascadero, he could have lived his life as a normal human. I mean, attempted to. I mean, yeah, Maybe. obviously, no, that obviously because we know that the cards were not stacked in that direction. But yeah. in the sense that he could have also just chosen to not freaking kill people and, you know, attempted at relationships. But when it's so twisted and it's it's so he's unable think, to... Let's get through of, the facts here real quick. Not to... I hate off. this guy. <laughs> <laughs> just... um, so anyway, he disgraces the corpse of each girl as well as the severed heads. He has sex with each severed head. That's touching on what you said. This is beyond, you know, necessary. Mm-hmm. And uh, so after placing the body parts in plastic bags, he scatters the body's parts throughout the Bay Area and uh, a mountain range in California near the Bay Area. And in August, Pesci's uh, skull was found on Loma Prieta Mountain. I'm probably... Loma Prieta. Loma Prieta Mountain by a pair of hikers. And that was the only part of either of the two girls' remains that were ever found. Holy shit. For that is something to think about. I mean, yeah. Especially since they knew after the fact where he threw all that stuff. You know? Um, okay. So, uh... Yeah, five months later, you want to do this? Yeah, yeah, I want to pick this one up. So next up, we have... Uh, his next victim was Aiko Ku. This was only five months later. Uh, it was on the evening of September 14th, 1972. 
uh, he picks up the uh, the fifteen year old Korean dance student uh, I Koku. Fifteen years old. Was this his youngest victim? This was his youngest victim. Wow. Um, all right. So uh, he she had missed her bus to dance class, so she had just decided to hitchhike. He gains her trust um, uh, uh, to get her in the car, and uh, he's he's kind of like an expert at this already. He wants can I just say this? Yeah. Not, not to interrupt, but again, back then. It was like, okay, it's an adult. I can trust an adult. You know, he's going to give me a ride. I'm going to dance class. Everything's cool. Well, people were still people, though. And he, I, exactly. I, rem- I, rem- what I remember him talking about this in one of his interviews. He, he came up with lots of clever tricks to kind of throw people off his trail. He's like, yeah, like maybe you look at your watch and you act like you're in a hurry. That's so manipulative. So, so it's um, it's like gaslighting. It's like, oh, I'll lead this person to believe that I'm frustrated already by picking them up. All right, so he, he gets her he gets her in the car and he drives her to uh, an isolated spot again, familiar to him. And he tells her, he's just straight up tells her um, that he's kidnapped her and uh, he pulls out his gun. And I go... Uh, Rightfully so, freaks out. Uh, she panics and she starts to beg for her life and becomes hysterical. Uh, a normal reaction. I would always be thinking, okay, maybe there's a way I could get out of this, or you know, I'd be thinking of something. But for a 15 year old dance student, don't hitchhike if ag- you're 15 against years old. a guy built like a tank. There's nothing you can do. It freaks me out just thinking about it. Yeah. And uh, in a further example of his manipulation he, he calms her down he tells her the story that he's going to actually commit he was going to commit suicide that he was uh, going to kill her along with himself but now he's changed his mind that kind of maybe she broke through with him and she's he's almost trying to get her on his side this is really confusing yeah. i don't know why this would calm you because he's he's next level so it worked because he he got he gets out of the car and the door shuts and locks behind him and he left the gun there uh, with the keys fuck. and she's still in the car with all this. He's done this for years. He manipulated his, his doctors. How he many practiced years picking now? Ten up. years at and, least. Yeah, and that's just what his life was was just practicing for this moment, for just that. Um, Sick. Yeah. So how did he actually? Oh, uh, so in your notes it says he convinces or. To get let him back in the car, but does it? Does he ever actually? Uh, That's what I'm saying. I, it, I could never find out how he convinces her. How he actually pulled it off? Like how that. he? How he actually did it? He gets locked out of his own car with the gun and the girl and the keys, and he still managed to work his way in. And I, it's I can only say, it's because this poor sweet girl was innocent enough that in this panic, she was so quick to believe. That story that had a touch of sympathy that she in it. would be let her live. Yeah, that yeah, because of course you want to believe any scenario where you're walking. Away. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one that it's stands out to me the most. That's, but it is amazing. That's the one that stands out to me the most. Absolutely. Um, so, Ico Ico So he gets in, uh, and then he suffocates her until she's unconscious. Um, but he keeps her alive. Uh, he puts duct tape over her mouth and he pinches her nose closed, which then further suffocates her into, into death. So he's kind of breaking his M.O. here. Well, going off the last one where it was such a mess up and it didn't go the way he planned, he yeah. probably wanted no X factors. He wanted someone he could completely just grab. Gotcha. Like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense if you connect those two dots. Yeah. Um, so he kills her there. Uh, he, he puts her right in the trunk and then he goes home. 
before that, he stops off at a nearby bar and has a few beers to calm down. You know, he had like a, you do. a hard day at the office. Out in the killing fields, you got to have a happy hour. Got to wet the whistle. Happy hour. And then and then you go home. And then you drive home because that's <laughs> – what an irresponsible human being he well, is. You know what? Back in the 70s, that's, that type of thing was – that was frowned upon if you didn't drink and drive. Of all the things to chastise him for. He drunk and then he drove he home. Went to a bar after murdering, drank, and then drove. Are you – You're just having a spree, aren't you? You, you are sick. completely out of control. <laughs> Jesus he was he was literally celebrating this kill though he was uh, he even open he says he had opened up the trunk and he he's, he just admired his catch like a fisherman he outside goes. the bar yeah right outside the bar and then he uh, and then he went home with the body and then he he, re- he repeats the whole spiel uh the head the body and then the limbs that doesn't change no that part doesn't change okay and then complete with uh, dismembering and scattering the remains all across the bay area um and then it was the next day that he had a state-mandated psychiatric appointment, wouldn't you know it? <laughs> of course. Yeah. He schedules his murders right around the time of his... Yeah, so he was probably feeling really good, and his doctor was like, mm, he was in good spirits today. Uh, so yeah, he went, yeah, you know what? He was probably, yeah. He probably, probably riding was, high off his kill. Yep, the doctor was probably like, yeah, it was a good, it was a good session. But he went to that appointment with her head in his trunk. Stop it. Uh, yep, and that's stop it. Yeah, it's a power thing. That's so, disgusting. so all he walks around now. Nah, none of the, none of these people know, and uh, that officially classified him as a serial killer at that point. Yeah, I guess it would. That'd be that'd be number. Well, technically, that's number five. five yeah, <laughs> five. Anybody you kill before age eighteen doesn't really count. It's kind of like yeah, it's, they kind of just say, hey, "You'd still be saved." You know, he's troubled. His mom made him sleep in the basement. That's what it yeah. is. Yeah. Bloody fun fact, though. A bloody fun fact, guys. <laughs> uh, the the same time that Kemper's killing, guessing it's right around the same time he kills Ico Koo, mm-hmm. is the same time that serial killer Herbert Mullen was killing people because he thought it was preventing a major earthquake similar to the earthquake in San Francisco that rocked it in 1906 and killed 3,000 people. So so he killed people to prevent an earthquake in his mind, is what you're saying? No, it prevented earthquakes, Oh, it man. did? Oh, he did prevent the earthquakes. Yeah, absolutely. They didn't happen. Didn't happen. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Herbert. But they also didn't happen when he was... They continued not to have earthquakes after he stopped killing people in 1973 when he was arrested. So that entire area was just kind of... um, It just had a a nice group of people who had similar hobbies. Charlie Manson, Ed Kemper, Herbert Mullen. Yeah, they were all the California killers, man. What are you you doing, Hollywood? (laughs) What are you you doing? What are you doing over there? Like, California... (laughs) And Florida alone could be like two seasons of this podcast. Yeah. Um, but Herbert Mullen's interesting. He really is a whole episode in himself. The 1906 earthquake happened on April 18th. Herbert Mullen would be born 41 years later on uh, that same day. So he thought he was yeah, some sort okay. of savior. But well, it's just a little fun we'll fact. Have to, we'll have to come back to him. Yeah, he we'll sounds... come back to him. Okay, so back to Ed Kemper on... January 8th, 1973, Kemper, who is now broke and had moved back home with Clarnell. Oh, Jesus. Happy-go-lucky mommy. 
He was uh, driving around Cabrillo College campus when he picked up another 18-year-old student, Cindy Shaw, Cynthia Shaw. Um, he drove to a sequestered wooded area and mm-hmm. uh, choked her out, fatally shot her, this time with a twenty-two caliber mm-hmm. that he recently purchased. Did he shoot the first two girls? No. This is the first time he's doing he wants to get it quick, done and over with at this okay. point. So he places, again, her body in the trunk of the car and drives to his mother's house. And this time he keeps her body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. Jesus. So his mom comes home, what she thinks, normal evening. They sleep with this body in the apartment. That's in the closet. It's disgusting gonna, to think about. Yeah, I was going to say, that just sounds like ramped up behavior from Ico. He left her head in the trunk and then went to his apartment. Now he's just straight up bringing his bodies around well, the family. Probably. He takes it one step further. Uh, the sure. next day after mom leaves for work, Kemper goes about his normal routine with a corpse and uh, gets his sexual release and dismembers the body in the bathtub. And this time he removes the bullet from the skull after shooting his first victim. Mm-hmm. And um, buries the head in his mother's backyard, facing her bedroom. Oh, that's a comforting thought. Well, Kemper said she always wanted people to look up to her. <laughs> Here you go, Mom. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, um, he dumped. Go ahead. I was going to say, sometimes kids bring their mom um, dandelions. <laughs> sometimes they bring them candies or chocolates. Edmund brought a head. <laughs> he's like a he's like a cat. I have it's for you, mommy. <laughs> Kemper uh, dumped the rest of the body in the ocean, and two days later, after she was killed on January 10th, her arms and hands wash up on shore, and various body parts wash up over the next two uh, weeks. Yeah, she have stuck with the woods there already. Uh oh. And uh, on February 5th, this is just another month. Just after a month his, after that one? After his, he moves wow. quick. Yeah, he couldn't keep it together is what it was. Well, it's mostly these heated fights that he gets oh, in with his right. mom. Yeah, his mom his mom keeps his ramping mom him and up and he that, just... That sets him off and he goes for his drives and those little zapples start... Zapples. Yeah, that's what he called his little urges and fantasies. Okay. So February 5th, he leaves after another fight and mm-hmm. looks for a, another victim. And um, there's heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area. So students were highly advised to only get into cars. You can still hitchhike, but only get into cars that are marked with uh, the University of Santa Cruz had special stickers for student parking. Oh, for parking. And for administrators as well. And um, Kemper's mom was an administrator. That's right. So I just like that only now are they starting to catch on to the fact, oh, a serial killer or yeah. or seven at, at least two there yeah. was definitely <laughs> at least two minimum oh. so he's driving around in his mom's car and he encounters 23 year old rosalind thorpe mm. and 20 year old allison lou they're on the uh, university of california santa cruz campus that's where his mom works his mom works so he has the stickers yeah that's why they uh they feel comfortable with him According to Kemper, Thorpe entered his car first, which reassured Lou to also get in the car. Uh-huh. And again, isolated spot, shoots them, 
rapes their bodies, dismembers them, and scatters their remains. He removes the bullets to avoid identification, and uh, remains were found at Eden Canyon a week later, and more were found near Highway 1 in March. Uh, when questioned in an interview as to why he removed victims' heads before performing sexual acts on the bodies, uh-huh. Kemper said that the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at, the brain, eyes, mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a young kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true, he says. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. Oh. Well, uh, you know, it's uh, it's what we said in the beginning, where his entire world is warped, and he kind of idealizes that, didn't he? Or at least some... Well, he definitely wanted to have some sort of connection with his dad, yeah. and that was never achieved. It, he went to seek his dad out, and... So I, it wouldn't... It, it doesn't surprise me that things that his dad would say like that would kind of stick with him and get turned into something different when he's already such a factory of hate and, you know, all this. He just transforms it. So... His dad says, oh, that's everything right there. Like, maybe even trying to teach him, like, a lesson about, like, oh, this is how fragile we are. I, I definitely think his dad just kind of kicking him to the curb oh, factors right, yeah. in. Yeah, that's right, too. And whatever impact his dad did make didn't help. No. So, at this point in his murder spree, Kemper's pretty sure that cops are onto him. Mm-hmm. He thinks they have an idea of who the killer is specifically. He's a pretty smart guy. Well, he's got the wrong assumption. They they know there's a killer out there, but they don't have any clues as to who it is. Right. They know he's picking up hitchhikers. That's mm-hmm. all they know. But he thinks his capture is more or less imminent. So April 21st, 1973. Ed's at home. His mom comes home drunk from a party. Has more of a social life than him. Got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she wakes him up and... Uh, you know, Ed gets up, I guess, whatever, does his thing about the apartment, and um, his mom goes into the bedroom. She gets comfortable and starts reading a book. Okay. Kemper comes in, and she says to him, I suppose you want to sit up all night and talk. I know that line. And Kemper just looked at her and said, no, good night. Mm-hmm. So he waits for his mom to fall asleep and returns to her bedroom with a claw hammer. And he bludgeons her to death over the head. Afterwards, he slits her throat and subsequently decapitates her. And goes, and yeah, yeah, he does, does, doesn't stop just because it's his mom. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he had sex with his mother's head. Yeah. Then he used it as a dartboard. He said he threw darts at the head of his mother while screaming at it for over an hour That's and nice finally smashed her face until it was unrecognizable. Yeah. yeah, he he also, I don't know what kind of, you know, in, in what order this all took place. At some point, he cut out her tongue and larynx and threw them in the garbage disposal and turned it on. However, the garbage disposal wasn't able to break down the tough vocal cords and ejected the tissue mm. back out of the sink. Yeah, it's not made for people meat, huh? Kemper said it was appropriate 
as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled over the years, she said it seemed appropriate. Oh, yeah. If I had the, the voice box just coming out, like, yes, you know what? No. Very poetic. Yeah. Well, for him, I'm sure it would be. <laughs> so then he has it, sex with her, with her corpse and hides it in a closet and... Goes out drinking. You know, I mean, the I mean, not the image of like his his mom's parts coming out of the garbage disposal, but but the idea of that happening, his his, his own mother's organs flying out of a little meat grinder, mm. and him going, oh, that's just like mom, isn't it? And then going to rape her corpse. <laughs> that's oh. that's a day. That was a day for him. He I'm lived. So happy I didn't eat before he, we sat down. He lived through that day. <laughs> Like that's just a day he had. Well, this is what this is the culmination that's of a, his murder spree. This is yeah. what it was all about: was killing his it, mom. I mean, everything from his grandmother down the line. Mm-hmm. This is what it comes to: his mom. Yeah. That was after right. this. Yeah, I was gonna say. So how did this? Yeah, he goes and has to... a few drinks, and then he comes home. He invites his his mom's friend Sally Hallett over to the house for dinner and a movie, Netflix and chill. Mm. Have you, seen, have you seen Mine Hunter? <laughs> it's really good. That's fucking creepy. <laughs> so when Hallett arrives, no Netflix, no dinner, no movies, no fun. He strangles her to death right away, decapitates her, and spends the night with her and examines her body. Uh. The same state, same spiel, all this stuff. Uh, Does, yeah, head, head he, body, like, limbs. Like yeah, head, body, limbs, but examines the body. What, doing what with Who a with knows? a with a fr- what is exam like? I'm like I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna. T- I, I picture he's he, playing uh, with a corpse. I'm just picturing a magnifying glass. Like hmm. <laughs> he's Mold. looking at the innards and all that stuff. Anyway, he puts her corpse in the closet. And obscured any outward signs of disturbance and left a note for the police. Mm-hmm. It read as follows. Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. So Kemper leaves the scene, driving nonstop in his mom's car to Pueblo, Colorado. He's thinking that the cops are going to bust down the door, find this note, and go after him. He's already leading them on a high-speed chase. He thinks they're behind him. I was going to say, for one thing, I was a little dumbfounded at that note because that... Whoa! What was that? Yeah, he just so he because he thought people were hot on his trail. He wrote he wrote that on that note and just left it behind, thinking that someone was going to find it real soon. Or yeah, and they would just okay, we got to go get Ed. I can I can see it happening. You know, after he he kills his mom and her friend, it's it's done. It's over. This is probably like the emotional climax of his life at this point. Exactly. It's for you know he he has every good reason to think like oh this is. Cops catch me. This is it. This is it. But, but what, no. But what happened? No. Uh, nobody's behind him. There's no wild chase or anything. Mm-hmm. He doesn't hear anything on the news or the radio about any murders of his mother or, or or her friend. And when he arrives in Colorado, he gets into a phone booth and he calls the cops, mm-hmm. just like he did with his grandparents. The first thing he does, 
he confesses uh, to the murder of both his mother and her friend Sally, and uh, the cops don't take him seriously. No, oh. this this guy just can't go to prison as much as he tries. He had to call back a few times, and um, several hours later, he calls again and asks to speak to an officer he personally knew. I guess from hanging out. Oh, uh, what was at it? the jury room? The jury room, right? Big Ed. So he he's calling Santa Cruz from Colorado. Uh huh. And uh, so he, he talks to this guy that he knows, and he confesses, and um, he awaits the Pueblo, Colorado police. I guess the cop that he knows calls the Colorado police, tell him, hey, he's not fucking around. Yeah. You got a, you got a psychopath on your hands. Right. So he's waiting for the police to arrive and take him into custody. And um, they knew he, there was a serial killer. And he just well, from, Santa Cruz did, but remember, this is a time when Colorado oh, right. police yeah, departments not, don't share information with each oh, other. Oh, right. He called Pueblo while he was he, okay. He was in he Colorado. Police. He called he California because the Pueblo police didn't believe him. So right. he called a guy that he knew and said, "Listen, I'm in Colorado." And while he was waiting, he confessed to the murders of the six students, revealing okay. that he was the co-ed killer. Uh, when asked why he turned himself in, Kemper said the original purpose was gone. His yeah. motive oh, was his mother. This is the ultimate climax for him was yeah. his mother. Yeah. And now that's gone. So you're exactly right. Uh, he said it wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose anymore. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. Wow. So for the trial in May 1973, Kemper was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder. Eight counts? Is that including his his grandparents? You have... Yeah, let's let's start from the top. You have... Marianne and Anita, that's two. Mm-hmm. Iko is three. Mm-hmm. Cindy Shaw is four. Got it. Oh, Rosalind yeah. Thorpe and Allison Liu is five and six. Mom and Sally, seven that's and eight. Seven and eight, okay. Yeah. So, remember, he's arrested in Colorado. They drive him back to California, to Santa Cruz, and he's talking the whole time. He's giving this confession during the whole drive. Mm-hmm. and um, He's just laying it out. Yep, laying the whole thing out for the cops. He's a talker. He loves to talk, especially to cops. So due to the details of his confession, his counsel's only option was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Really? Kemper twice tried to commit suicide in custody, but he survived both times. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, he slit his wrist both times. Really? Wow. Yeah. Trial went ahead on October 23, 1973. Three court-appointed psychiatrists found Kemper to be legally sane. Mm -hmm. One of the psychiatrists investigated his juvenile records and the diagnosis that he was... One diagnosed that he was completely psychotic. That's one of his uh, juvenile records, though. Yes. Psychiatrists investigated his juvenile records... And the diagnosis that he was once psychotic. Okay. Yeah. yeah. From when he killed his That's, grandparents. That was the label that they gave him after he was institutionalized for killing his grandparents. Right. So, right. So they had this, to unseal that shit. Right. The psychiatrist also interviewed Kemper and relayed to the court that Kemper engaged in cannibalism, 
alleging that he sliced flesh from the legs of his victims, then cooked and consumed these strips of flesh as a, in a casserole. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, psychiatrist Dr. Joel Fort determined that Kemper was fully cognizant in each case, mm-hmm. meaning he totally knew what he was doing yeah. and he knew what was going on and the full repercussions of his actions. Yeah. And he stated that Kemper enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled a murderer. Mm-hmm. Kemper later recanted the confessions of his cannibalism. Well, meaning he, he walked that back and said that didn't actually happen? Or? Exactly, yeah, at some point or another. He walked back and said, yeah, I didn't, I never did that. Do you think that's true, or do you think he, he did? It's, I mean, why say it initially? Maybe he was honest, and I don't know. Or, I don't know, do you think it was just a ploy to try to get the insane charge? Or, uh, like, I mean, I he is anything, you can describe him in a The most, honestly, the, the nicest thing I could ever say about Ed Kemper is that he's a self-aware person. Well, he appeared to know that the nature of his acts were wrong. Yeah. And he shows signs of malice as an afterthought. Right, right. That's that's why they labeled him sane. He, um, he took the stand. On November 1st, he testifies in his own, uh, air quote, defense. Mm -hmm. And he testified that he kills the women because he wants them for himself as a possession. Sure, okay. So that leads me to believe that he he went ahead and cannibalized. Yeah, I mean, everything he's demonstrated. Because you can take his words one way or another, but what he's demonstrated is that he has pushed just aspects of, of his power plays. It's just been all about power and dehumanizing these people. From the time he got out, it's it's all been about power. He wanted to be a cop. Mm-hmm. But, again, that rejection card kept getting played. Mm-hmm. Um, so, he yeah, he, he wants to keep the these these girls as a possession. At the same time, we know the ultimate goal was... The fantasy of killing his mother, mm-hmm. and that's what he did in the end. He says the two two beings inhabited his body, and that when the killer personality took over, it was kind of like blacking out. So on November eighth, nineteen seventy three, the six man, six woman jury convened for five hours before declaring Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. Yeah, they decided within the first five minutes that he was guilty. It was a unanimous decision. And then they enjoyed pizza for the next five hours and 55 (laughs) 55 minutes. I mean, it couldn't have taken that much. (laughs) Anyway, Ed Kemper asked for the death penalty, requesting death by torture. If only we could make those special requests, right? Like, (laughs) I think I would choose drawn and quartered myself while a more with a moratorium placed on capital punishment by the supreme court at the time he instead received seven years to life for each count with these terms to be served concurrently and was sentenced to the california medical facility at vacaville so seven years to life that's a pretty wide margin does that do do they is that was that already decided at the uh when he was charged i think that that's with parole hearings he gets to, uh, you know, he gets chances. He had, maybe he had chances parole. He'll never uh, be out of prison, though. No, no. Because, I mean, I was seven no, years isn't, said, isn't it, that long, and to run them concurrently. He's incarcerated. He was incarcerated at this, on the same prison block as uh, Herbert Mullen. Oh. 
and Charles Manson. Oh, it was like, oh, cool. They like, called. They, they just, yeah, they just stuck yeah. together. They were on the same block. They must have called. They that killed the, around uh, the same time. The Arkham Wing. <laughs> but Kemper, <laughs> Kemper showed disdain for Herbert Mullen, who uh, committed his murders at the same time. Uh huh. And Kemper said he saw him as just a cold-blooded killer killing everybody he saw for no good reason. Yeah, well, the Penguin never liked the Joker, so <laughs> same reasons. Yeah. So he, yeah, well, when, yeah, I mean... Well, wait, he, he manipulated and, and uh, intimidated Herbert Mullen, who was only 5'7", whereas Ed Kemper stood 6'9". Yeah, small giant size. So, yeah, Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people, apparently, when somebody was trying to watch TV. Aww. So... Kemper threw water on him to shut him up. And he, Kemper says, when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. <laughs> that was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to go sing. That's called behavior modification treatment. Well, that's a, So they had this insane... Direct I mean, quote from Ed Kemper. Holy shit. So they had this ins, like actually insane, uh, paranoid, schizophrenic person... Next to this highly intelligent, sane criminal. Like, I'm not saying that they're like two different of cases, but yeah, two different of platitudes. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and they're talking to each other. Platitude (laughs) is is I totally misused that word, by the way. That's okay. But uh, I'll have a correction next next week. Oh, thank goodness. I would have, I would like to see a sitcom. Uh, call it call it Herbie 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 and Kemp. Herbie and Kemp yeah. on Cell Block D. On <laughs> Cell Block D, it's real nineties sitcomy. <laughs> saxophone intro. So Kemper remains among the general population in prison and is considered a model prisoner. Mm-hmm. He was in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists and was an accomplished craftsman of ceramic cups. Oh, good. He was also a prolific reader of books on tape for the blind. Oh. In 1987, an L.A. Times article stated that he was the coordinator of the prisons program and had personally spent over 5,000 hours narrating books Holy with several hundred completed recordings to his name. That's right. I actually have the uh, Game of Thrones audiobook as <laughs> read by Edmund Kemper. Well, he retired in 2015. After experiencing a stroke, and um, the hospital declared him medically disabled. Somehow, being medically disabled, he received his first rules violation, a uh, what they call a 115. He received that in 2016 for failing to provide a urine sample. And that's where Ed Kemper stands today. Well, uh, that's a hell of a career. Hell of a retirement. Any thoughts, opinions, I mean, concerns, opi- judgments? Um, yeah, I judge Ed Kemper as, I mean, he's a, he's a scumbag. Now he's, he's a total a me- piece of shit. Now he's an old, medically disabled scumbag. I wonder if he's even fully aware of everything that he did. Is He's got to be such a completely different person, like, today compared to... Yeah, not to say he's changed or, or anything no, like I'm that. No, I'm not saying he's... Um, or even has any empathy for his victims, but... Uh, but just in the sense that he's an old does he tired dwell man. On those? Yeah, that's what I mean. He's an old tired man, and old tired men reflect on their lives a lot, regardless of whether or not they have empathy. And he's probably looking back like, oh. well, he had a stroke. Now maybe he, he might not be able to remember. I mean, well, what an insane case and an insane start. I, and and 
a good uh, subject for a first episode because I really feel like we'll be referring to him a lot. Like he's kind of like a framework that yeah. will kind of like be good jumping up. off point. Yeah, good starting starting point. I learned a lot. I did too. Um, uh, I'm quite frankly sick of Ed Kemper. <laughs> um, just the shitty childhood that he went through. Yeah, it's not going to get it's any better. So depressing. <laughs> no, I know that. I know that. But mm. I'm ready for episode two. Serial killers, I think, on this show are going to be not a special occasion, but every now and then we're going to throw you a good one and kick you in the nuts. Mm-hmm. Great. Just we're here to ruin your day. <laughs> exactly. Not your day. I want you to listen <laughs> during the day, and I want you to go home and be terrified. I want you to tuck your children in. I want you to lock all your doors, lock all your windows, and I want you to feel terrified. That's a, a line... From Halloween. <laughs> Do you remember what I'm talking about? That that one part? I think so. Lock your doors. Bolt your windows. Turn out the lights. And it's like, so he's watching... Um, freaking From the, the movie? Halloween? Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Halloween. Halloween? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, they're watching something on TV, like the day the earth stood still or something. Yeah. But, I mean, bringing up Halloween, they... Because we were talking about this before we started. Um, they modeled the stature of Michael Myers as based on Ed Kemper, just as the, the phys- shape. Yeah, just the physical. Oh, I mean, man, it's shape, but like just the something three hundred some pounds. Yeah, but yeah, you see why they'd use Ed Kemper as the model for Michael Myers. Yeah. He was a very statuesque murderer. Thomas huh. Harris from uh, who wrote Silence of the Ham- Silence of the Hams. It's a, it's a much funnier book, by I, the way. I caught myself. Uh, Silence of the Lambs and uh, Red Dragon. He modeled Buffalo Bill. Or n- parts of him. Yeah, just he, a, used, he used a few few people for Buffalo Bill. I think he yeah, used he's an, an amalgam. Bundy, when he was helping the girl, or asked the girl for help with the... You remember the scene? Yeah, he's he lugging gets the him into the van. Into the van, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, size put, 14. Yeah, he likes what? the great big fat women. Oh, wait. Was she a great big fat woman? Yeah. Yeah, she was a big girl, sir. <laughs> you prick. Um, that's right, yeah. So, James Gum, he, they... James Gum, yeah. yeah Not Buffalo Bill. Yeah, because they... Uh, the backstory for James Gum is that he murders his grandparents at a young age and is sent off to a psychiatric prison. So that's how Buffalo Bill starts his whole thing? That's how Buffalo Bill starts his criminal career. And then Bundy with broken arm, and then they throw in a little bit of uh, Jerry Brudos for shoes. That's that's right, I do know him. familiar. Anyway, I think we've rambled enough. Thank you for sticking around this long. If you have... Come back next week for episode two. We don't know what it is yet. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, Again, if you want to reach out, a dark tale pod is our Twitter handle. And if you want to shoot us any questions or concerns or FUs, you can do that at um, a dark tale podcast at gmail.com. Like, subscribe, download, all that jazz. And we'll see you later. Be careful out there because evil. Could be anywhere. Stop it. Sleep tight.